Hello innovators, explorers and risk takers. Welcome to another episode of the Web3 with Sam Kamani podcast and on today's episode I am interviewing Sherry Jiang from Blue Jay Finance. Prior to Blue Jay Finance, she used to work in the product department for Google and also for Amazon. So she is extremely experienced and she's also very knowledgeable in all things crypto and DeFi. So today we are going to be talking a lot about Blue Jay Finance and how they are democratizing the world of private credit in Asia. And in this wide ranging discussion, we also talk about things such as stablecoins and what is going on in the whole crypto ecosystem currently, how decentralization is going to change the finance industry and how to be safe in the world of DeFi. Finally, I would like to say that nothing mentioned in this podcast episode should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is not sponsored by Blue Jay Finance and I do not run any ads on this podcast. So it would mean a lot if you can please leave a review for this episode or for this podcast on your platform of choice, whether it's Apple or Spotify. With that out of the way, let's get into it. So... Sherry, it's great to have you on the show. Looking forward to talking with you. I have been following you on LinkedIn and other social media and following your company. And I find it quite interesting what you've built. So for some of our audience who, who don't know about Blue Jay Finance or your company, can you please tell us a bit about what your company does and what problems it solves for, for people? Absolutely. Sam, I'm glad and very excited to be here. So to introduce Blue Jay Finance, we're basically a company that is tokenizing private market assets like private credit and make it making it much more accessible to invest into it, basically using blockchain as the infrastructure. Now you may ask what private credit is and why you should even care about it. Well, in the last cycle, what we've all learned if we hold any stocks is that market volatility can sometimes affect our portfolios, right? Both Absolutely. on the crypto side. Yep. And, and on the equity side as well. Right. Yes. And so, you know, we told ourselves that, for example, if we held ETFs, you get like, you know, 12, six, sorry, eight to 12 percent yeah. annualized returns every single year. But of course, you have volatilities in certain, you know, down markets, down market periods. The benefit of private market assets like private credit is that they offer a powerful diversification tool for you to increase your risk adjusted return over time. So that's something that has been available to institutions in finance, but in traditional finance, but it's been very hard for any average investor to be able yes. to get access to it. It's, an, it's a closed network and you have to cough up sometimes a couple hundred K as a minimum check size to even be considered. Yeah. So that's the problem that we're trying to solve. And if, you know, for our company, we don't want to, you know, have something in DeFi or blockchain for just the sake of it. We won't yes. want to make it so that it just becomes so much easier for somebody to connect their wallet and invest as little as hundred dollars into a qualified asset manager or a private credit fund and get the same kind of returns that a multi-billion dollar fund can get and have that kind of same power, that same powerful tool within your portfolio. Yeah. So can you give me some examples of how it would work? What sort of things people would invest in or yeah. Yeah. So have you ever heard of AngelList or used AngelList? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. A lot. So yes. Great, great. So 
most people are familiar with AngelList, but it's all venture investing, right? So early yes. stage companies, but it's a platform, right? So you can yeah. see a bunch of these different opportunities and, you know, you join a syndicate, you can invest, right? So we're also an, a platform, right? And so yes. we have, we strive to have a multitude of different opportunities for people to actually invest into, depending on what their risk reward appetite is, right? So examples of what, you know, we've actually launched with is a private credit fund based here in Asia that is backed by a major sovereign fund here on the equity side. And they basically have a bond that you can invest into that takes those funds and invests across a portfolio of different small to mid cap company debt around the region. It's secured on multiple layers, meaning if there's any kind of negative situation like a default, there are recourse methods in there to protect you as an investor. So that's one example of a fund that we were able to bring onto the platform from the time we launched. And from that time to today, we've raised actually over half a million dollars for just this one player. We are looking to expand the types of opportunities as well in the future. So you know, the whole space of credit is actually very, very broad, right? So yes. you have like your typical direct lending, but you also have for example, things like venture debt, which is more high risk investing into all, you know, higher growth startups. Usually there's yes. some kind of equity worn component or some kind of interesting structure there. So there's a lot of other types of debt as well. So what we do with, as a company is keep our eyes and ears out for some of these opportunities that again, normally are proliferated with behind closed doors and we make it more available for people to be able to add to their investment portfolio. But then don't people have to be accredited investors or do they have to be accredited investors to invest through Blue Jay Finance? Yeah, so the requirement is still on the, you still have to have accreditation status. That is basically a reality for most of these alternative asset companies today. But even so, if you look at just the accredited investor base, less than 10% have actually invested into alternatives. So yeah. there's still actually quite a bit of inaccessibility and lack of awareness among, among the space. Oh, absolutely. Because in New Zealand, like where I am based, it doesn't take a lot to be accredited investors. And once again, as you say that people are generally just investing in property and stocks and ETFs and gold and Forex. And, and there's only few things, but a lot of the things that you mentioned are quite out of the radar for the average investor. I'm not talking about like ultra sophisticated investor and stuff. So, so what's the best way if someone wanted to get started, what should they do? What would they need to do if someone did want to, like, I did have a look on your platform and say it's gateway to Asian private credit. Say if someone wants to get started and wants to start investing, what would they need to do? Yeah. So first of all, they can look at some of the deals that are live on the platform. So, so right now, actually, we just recently closed our third fund, but yes. just a week or so ago, you would have seen that as a live deal. What I would suggest for people is actually do their own due diligence. Uh, oh, and absolutely. Absolutely. First, first of all, this is for all the audience. This is not investment advice. I am just keen to understand how this particular software and this particular platform works. And that's why I have invited Sherry. This is not a paid endorsement. Do your own research yeah. and compare it with other products and stuff. Yeah, but continue, continue. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, when you look at the deal page, I'll give you basic information. Yes. So tell you, you know, who the fund is. And depending on the agreement that we have with the fund, sometimes the name will be gated behind an NDA to sign for mm. the data room, or sometimes the name will just be out there, right? So this is actually fairly common among other players in this space that also do this kind of lending activity. So you take a look at the information, the company, the, you know, past performance data, and then also like interest rate, right? So what exactly you're getting out of it? Is it 10%? Is it 11%? Um, and how is it secured, right? Is there a corporate guarantee, meaning the balance sheet of the company is actually securing this loan in case anything happens negatively, or is it secured through something else, right? So that, that's basic information that you want to look for. Now, once that has piqued your interest, then I would go into the data room, which yes. is at the within the deal page as well. So you can click inside. You do have to sign an NDA because of the yes. requirements of the partners that we work with. And then you're able to see additional information that will cover anything from the loan agreement specifically with the company to sometimes financial as well. So balance sheet information. So you can kind of see like, you know, what kind of cash flow they have or, you know, the other, how leveraged they are, et cetera. So, so depending on the company, there'll be a, a variety of different information that you find within that data room for your due diligence. Now, at this point, you know, normally people will just think, okay, this seems like an attractive investment opportunity. I'm just going to try it out and see they, the process of, you know, actually investing is very, very simple. So we use stable coins as the medium exchange. So yeah. right now the funds that we've listed have been denominated in SGD, but yeah. we also will support other currencies as well, like USDC, et cetera. But basically yeah. you just have to get these currencies in your wallet and then connect your wallet, deposit however much you want to invest. And then you're done. Basically you lock it up depending on how long the 10 year period is. And then you receive interest payments back, you know, during the, the cadence indicated on the deal page. So it's as simple as that for the most part to actually invest in the platform. Oh, that's fantastic. And how did you come up with the idea or, or how did this project start? <laughs> Yeah. So funny story is that we actually initially started out as a stable coin company. That is yes. what we started out with two years ago. And how we got to this more, I'll say asset management platform is it's actually more straightforward than you think. We spent a lot of time actually thinking about what use cases stable coins can play a role in that would be almost like on the next, I guess the next stage of growth in the DeFi space, right? So stable coins initially became popular as a way for people to use a non-volatile based currency to trade, right? So Absolutely. Yeah. Not only trade, but for transfer of value as well. They have so much utility, stable coins. Exactly. Right. And you don't necessarily want to use something like Bitcoin as your base. I mean, you can use it as an investment, as an investment. I it think is just used for store of value. No one yeah. is using it for transaction. 66% of the wallets that hold Bitcoin haven't traded in the last year. It is something that you buy and hold. It's, it's Absolutely. not a transactional currency. N none of the volatile currencies are not. They are used for speculation, for trading, for value, but not for, for transferring value. It's all only stable coins in, in my point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so that was like where I think stable coins really started yes. out in terms of product market fit. And then there was, you know, DeFi summer that came about that like hypercharged the usage of all these stables now as a yes. way to generate yield, right? Also uh, yeah. like compound, urine, et cetera. And then, then I thought about, okay, like we're in this 
like 2022 era of like launching our stablecoin, like where's like the best use case. And, and this is where we're starting to see a lot of growth within what I think the industry calls it RWA space or real world asset space. Right. So it's like now we know people want yield, but a lot of people were burned by yield. That was not always sustainable if they didn't know when to, you know, when token emissions were unsustainable for a particular protocol they were partaking in. So there was a transition to looking at like yields that are reflected on chain, but are Mm. actually backed by assets that are in the real world, right? Because they, for example, retain their value more because they're actually being used for producing goods and services, right? This is good old capital that works, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we started, you know, looking at this space a lot for our stable coin. And then, then we're like, look, it might actually be really interesting to build an ecosystem where we have the app app aspect of it that connects with the end customer and then also the stable coin as well. And so that's actually how we got to the place that we're at today. So already we were looking at a ton of different use cases for stables, landed on RWA because we spent a lot of time exploring the space and then carved ourselves a little bit of a niche focusing on Asia specifically as a market. Oh, fantastic. And whereabouts are you from? Because I don't hear a Singaporean accent. I have lots of Singapore friends in Singapore. I've been there many times. Yeah, I'm actually originally from the US. I moved to Singapore five years ago. Oh, cool, cool. (laughs) I have seen this trend a lot in the recent years that so many people from US have left and are working pretty much all around the world now. (laughs) It is the other way around. (laughs) It used to be like 20 years ago, it used to be everyone was going there. Now a lot of people have left and and built companies and businesses all around the world. So which is, I find very interesting. (laughs) It is a macro shift. Talking about macro and trends and shifts, apart from... Apart from what you're building in bringing real world assets into into sort of on-chain and, and rewarding on-chain in a way, what other trends have you seen in DeFi recently? Yeah, I would say one trend that I think will continue to grow is actually more institutional money coming into the space, especially oh, as yes. um, regulations become more and more clear around how these yes. guys can participate, right? So I mean, we've seen some of the news recently about all these different institutions in the U.S. now. Bitcoin ETFs. Exactly. That's just the start, right? Yeah. And and in some ways, it's inevitable, right? That these institutions have customers. And if their customers are demanding these kind of exposure to these assets, yes. They're going to, right? So I do see, I do foresee more institutional money coming in. And the way that I, you know, see it is that, I don't think they're going to be the innovators. I think the innovators are still the, the startups. The Oh, yeah. The, yeah, absolutely. The absolutely. But they're, they're going to monitor, see what you know, makes sense of what's happening and then say, okay, like we're going to make a play here. Right. So, so I do yeah. see that happening, you know, in a, in a meaningful way, more so this cycle than, you know, in the previous ones. So I think that's one. The second one that uh, I want to talk a bit more about is actually the shift in the global dynamic when it comes to where the epicenter for crypto innovation is going to be happening. And I think a lot of it will shift outside the US, at least for the time. It has already in a way, in a way, if you look at the funding this year in 2023, before that, US used to dominate like 60, 70% of funding was going in there. Now it is all flowing out. It's only like 20% in US and most of it is flowing out of the US market into other countries and stuff. So that means those places are the ones that will be developing products that will be getting the users. Uh, And 
And yeah, so it's like it will snowball into something a lot bigger outside of US in the next five years if it continues going at this pace because of what everything that SEC is doing, there is no clarity. And as long as there is no clarity, corporates and enterprise cannot factor in that risk. They cannot calculate like, you know, their exposure to it. It's existential and it's uncertain and existential. Yes. Yes, yeah. exactly right. So so that's what's happening. So even though the, the money or the VCs might be based there, they are investing in companies outside of US a lot more. And, and that's the trend I have seen as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's something that I'm super bullish about with Asia yes. specifically. And like, you know, part of the reason why I'm even here is that there is a real impact that DeFi really can have in the still high underbanked population, I would say, in 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 this part of the world. So, in Southeast Asia, just to you know indicate some numbers, it's actually still like sixty to seventy percent underbanked levels for both consumers and businesses. Is it because of Indonesia? I mean, it's it's across the board, right? And, and by underbanked, it doesn't mean unbanked, to be clear. But it, you have a bank account, but maybe you don't have access to any yield product. You don't have a means of getting access to the, the stock market. So so there's multiple levels of what un, uh, underbanked yes. is, right? In some other jurisdictions where you have a slightly more totalitarian government, it's yes. uh, difficult sometimes to even move money out of your country if you're afraid of currency depreciation. So that's also being underbanked, but you can be incredibly financially literate, right? And yes. be underbanked. So so that's something I always want to clarify because when people think of underbanked in Asia, they think of like, oh, you're, you know, a farmer in a village and you don't have any electricity or, you know, internet access. <laughs> well, they could be people that you know, right? But they have not, they're being underserved by their existing solutions right now. So, so I think yeah. there's a, a big role that I, I think this, the, the industry can really play. And we've seen this play out a little bit, I think in the last cycle, where if you look at the MetaMask numbers, like some of the top countries are like the Philippines and Vietnam. And, and that's because like people were using and Nigeria that, and all that in yeah. Nigeria. Exactly. Right. Because it's really, really bringing a kind of access to digital finance that people didn't have before, yeah. right? So I, I have something more to add to that, though. It's like sure. talking about the unbanked, the real unbanked were the kids under 18 year olds and games like X Infinity and all that, <laughs> that bought people in. That's when people realized that they, the real unbanked wasn't the farmer in the thing. And the reason why the numbers are so high in Philippines and Vietnam is because they were big on the on the gaming scene because this was a way for them to earn their first dollar in their life. <laughs> because when yeah. you're 14 years old in Philippines or Vietnam, you don't necessarily have a bank account or pretty much in any country. And they were the real unbanked that the crypto industry banked. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So you will surprise yourself around what underbanked really means, right? We yes. always have like one idea, but really it's like much more, it's much more diverse than, than, than what you would sometimes even imagine. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think part of that whole narrative around like the impact that crypto can have for Asia will also bring in builders and innovators that want to build solutions in that direction. So I do see the world shifting its focus away from just the U.S. and you're going to have all these different pockets of builders in in different parts of the world. So, so I think that's, that's going to continue to happen. And the the third trend I'll talk about is perhaps a, you know, more general one. And, you know, I I don't want to make it sound generic, but I do think that the infrastructure is going to improve to make the 
technology more mass adoption ready. Like, I don't think we're there yet, like in terms of speed, performance, fees, even like account interactions. Like it's still very clunky for like the average person to use all of this, right? So I'm kind of waiting for the next cycle to bring about the same kind of, I guess the same kind of uh, thing that happened when, you know, back in the day when, you know, internet infrastructure was being created, like so much of this was actually laid as groundwork that it became super cheap actually at one point to like just build on top, right? So so I think that there there is a benefit to this whole like layer one, layer two work going on is that it's actually making it so that this infrastructure hopefully will become faster, cheaper, better so that you don't have to worry about the clunkiness of the experience as much, right? That that's just there functioning as fluidly as what we use as the internet today. The other part of this I will add is, you know, you, we, we will have multiple solutions that just make it easier for people to log in and use a crypto account without having to deal with private keys, right? Like, I think it's still something that makes it harder for like the average person to be able to actually get into Web3. So whether that is done at like a user identity level with email or, you know, other kind of magic link solutions, I think that these kind of innovations will just make it easier for people to be able to interact their account in a more natural way than just having private keys. So these are, you know, a couple of the, the, the trends that I think are going to come that I'm excited about to for one degree or another. So it's, you know, yes. more institutional money coming in, it's a shift away from just the U S and then a bettering of the infrastructure at both the layer one layer and the yeah. account layer as well at the app interface level. Yeah, that that is so true. You already answered my question. <laughs> my next question is like, you know, what needs to change? What needs to happen to for DeFi to become a bit more mainstream? And and I completely agree with your assessment of of the of the situation that it is still so clunky and and it is just that I don't know. It it's not ready yet. I still feel like a lot of the DeFi solutions or just even the the whole experience around using crypto, it still feels very half-baked. It's like I the other day I was reading someone's tweet and they were saying that, oh, to you need to understand about blockchain and DeFi and smart contracts and and all, all these concepts if you want to get ahead in the future and and win in, in DeFi and, and in the space. And it's like it's like I use a bank account. I don't need to understand relational data, like database management, like RDBMS. I don't need to understand SQL queries and stuff. That's the language of those databases where all the centralized data is stored. I just deal with the user interface that is convenient that I can use as a human. Why do I need to learn about smart contracts and the vulnerabilities in the smart contracts and all these sort of things, all these sort of concepts, if I want to participate in this industry, I don't want to learn about 2000 different currencies. It's friction. It's like, even in the world, we have probably 180 currencies. People use 10, the most, or 20, the most widely used transactions. If you look at all the Forex transactions and all the transactions in the world, very few currencies are used at a, at a global le- level. So it's like, there has to be like, it's friction. It's, yeah. So anyway, that's that's my point of view as well, that there's so much friction and, and how can we remove friction from this industry? Uh, yeah. Do you have any ideas? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff really just takes time. I mean, you know, this is a bit of a related, unrelated story, but like I was watching the documentary about Pamela Anderson actually last night, just on yeah. Netflix one of those like popped up I was curious and you know obviously there was something that went viral about her you know yes. between her and her partner at the time and that was like the early stage of like viral videos videos yeah. going viral on the internet and I remember like looking at what they had in the documentary it was like the the internet from like decades ago and we don't even recognize it anymore right the whole experience is so clunky and everything yes. and that took some time to change, right? You just had, you know, more and more people kind of iterating, like understanding like what is natural for, you know, people, how, how can people more naturally engage with the technology? So, so it, it just takes a little bit of time. Right. And so yeah. but you have to have people that really care about doing this. So, you know, one of the things that I think that the space needs is not only the like heavy technologists and the, the the believers, but you need the people that are actually very good at being almost like a translator or someone who's like able to empathize with what a new user's experience with DeFi or of the blockchain will be and design things in a way that makes a little bit more sense, right? I think that this could somehow come off as a controversial take because some people are like, no, you should build for natives only, right? You should build for a niche set of users that are already there. Stop trying to onboard the next whatever. Yeah, billion next billion, yeah. Onboard Web2 users or whatever. But sure, you can you can do that and you know have your user base be only capped at whoever is in the system today. But... <laughs> What about everyone else that would find value? You've got to find a way to bridge. You've got to yes. find a way to empathize and put yourself in the shoes of someone who's very different, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think that's that's probably what's missing. So it's like, yes, it's in the product layer. You can do all that testing and just optimize some of those flows. But I also do think that it's also in the education part, right? Yeah. And I, I know everyone talks about education, like, you know, tell people how to do things. But I, I sometimes think we even educate people from the wrong perspective, right? They, you you yes. throw you throw all these terminologies, you're almost like, okay, how do I explain this to this person from what I understand? But the problem with using jargon and everything is like the person has no clue what a smart contract is. But yeah. one way that I kind of explain something to someone else who's not in crypto, what a smart contract is, is I'm like, tell me about the last time you went to like a bank teller, right? Yes. You had a human. Okay. So let's say you were like trying to send, you know, a large sum of money. You, you know, tell them what, who the, what the address is. They type it in the computer. They're doing all these things very manually. Right. So that's basically a smart contract. Imagine if that person was like code, right? Because it's all logic, yeah. right? In their head, it's also if then, if else statements, right? Yes. It's the same thing. So I kind of use that to explain smart contracts and my mom will get it right away. She's like, yeah. oh, okay. Got it. But like, if you start talking about like smart contracts in a very technical way, it's not going to be very resonating with somebody. So I think that we need to explain things in a metaphorical way, in a way that uh, really takes into account where someone else is coming from. Right. And they will get it. Like most people will get it because you deal with money. You deal with all this stuff all the time. Right. You've, you've interacted with the internet. So, you know, yes. So yeah, that's my, my take on that. So spend a little bit of time in understanding what, what it takes for someone new to really get the technology and its benefits. And I think that will really help drive the space to a new place where you don't just have the, the native folks actually dominating the, the, the entire universe of users. 
Yeah, there's one very interesting, like not, not that long ago, I went to two weeks ago, I was in, in Canada. I, I live in New Zealand, but I was in Canada for ETH Waterloo and ETH Pragma. And I had lots of interesting conversation with lots and lots of founders and builders in this space. And one person said a very cool thing to me. And that made me realize that that is so true. And that is that, you know, if people get paid in in crypto that changes everything it's like once they get paid they have to spend money and that's why that if you look at which country has the highest percent of people using crypto on a monthly basis that's nigeria because people are getting paid in crypto for working overseas when i worked, when i hired people from nigeria i used to pay them in different cryptocurrencies and then stable coins once stable coins became big because they didn't have paypal that wasn't allowed in their country and and a lot of them were 18 year old kids doing community management on discord and all sorts of things doing ux ui writing emails doing social media all those sort of things design all that and they don't have bank accounts they don't have any like and it takes like $25 to transfer money and everything. And they might be just getting paid $10 an hour. So it's like they worked only three hours. So it's like if most of it will go to the bank. So it just made so much sense to just transfer money using crypto and, and it worked for everyone. And when they got paid in crypto, they had to spend it. So they would buy an exchange value using the same stable coins with their friends, whether it's getting a getting a haircut or buying a motorbike or a bicycle or whatever it might be. So it's like once you get people get paid in crypto, everything, everything changes. Then you don't they will go and find that education that they need. They yeah. they will do what it takes. And so we just need to solve that one side of the equation. Just like any marketplace, it's really challenging when you have the chicken and egg problem, which I'm sure you might have heard in the tech startup scene, like where most marketplaces take a lot to get up and going. Because what comes first, like the supplier or or the consumer, and you don't get consumers because there's no suppliers and suppliers don't come because there are no consumers there. And so in, in the crypto scene or in the blockchain scene, you just need to solve one thing and that is pay everyone in crypto. And, and that solves everything because that money keeps flowing through, especially if it's stable coins, because people don't want to hold it unlike Bitcoin. Bitcoin stops the flow. Bitcoin people want to hold it, don't want to spend it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah that, that's my that's my point of view. Or, or that's something what I learned in the last two, three weeks. But yeah. But what's what about you? What's your sort of vision for for Blue Jay and, and what do you, where do you see DeFi going in the next few years, two, three years? I mean, I would say five, but five is too long in this field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I certainly hope to, you know, be able to reach more and more users and yes. educate them on the benefits of, you know, using the blockchain as a way to access some of these asset classes, but yes. also educate people about the value of diversifying their portfolios, right? Like, it really does show a need that people went to DeFi for these yields, even though some of them may not be sustainable, but it shows that people want yield and traditional yeah. products have it. So I think there's, a, you know, I, I do see this as something that gets hopefully mass adopted in the next couple of years where even among accredited investors, right? I want that number for alternative asset exposure to go from 5% to maybe 25% or 20%. Well, right? that's pretty good. Yeah. 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 And we're not That'd the only ones. Amazing. 
right? So I think, yeah, yeah I, I think, yeah, that that's something I'm, I'm, I'm certainly very excited about. And then the, the other part that I do foresee in, you know, in the next few years is the delineation between DeFi and TradFi is going to erode away a little bit. It's just going to yeah. be complicated, right? And some people also criticize fintech saying that it shouldn't be fintech. It's just financial services too. But that's really how I see things, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's a, you're enabling tech in multiple layers, but at the end of the day, the, the, the business model, the principles of how money works, like that should all be similar, right? There's, there's really not to, to me that big of a, there shouldn't be this need to make that difference, right? Again, if we get to a stage where more and more people are interacting with DeFi rails without knowing it's DeFi rails, then it doesn't matter to them if this is DeFi or not. They just want to get paid or they just want to be able to send money across the country or they want to be able to invest and get yield. That's what matters, right? Yeah, uh, yeah so that's what I where I see the space moving. Of course, there will be, I think, a special corner of DeFi that will be more so for folks that are, are a bit more on the native side, right? I think that that should exist and that can exist. But I think for 99% of the people coming in, they just want to have money work for them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what everyone wants. And, you know, why not provide the service that people want? And what that's what I like about you. And that is you are solving real problems because in so many times in Web3, Web3 founders are only solving Web3 problems. So they would be solving such a niche problem within Web3. They're not starting like the traditional Web2 industry is saying that, okay, what are people struggling with in, in their niche and then solving that? So so yeah, say, saying that, is there, what's your ask? Is there anything that you're looking for? Are you looking for investment? Are you looking for employees to hire? Anything, feel free to share. So... Well, we're always looking to, you know, grow our user base, right? We're, we're fairly well capitalized right now from an investment standpoint, but we're, you know, looking to grow. But honestly, beyond just growing, right? We want feedback. Yeah. I, I think at the stage that we're at, numbers matter less than learnings, which again, I think yes. is a controversial opinion because people are always very numbers driven, numbers, numbers, numbers. But if you want to build a short term thing, then yeah, be numbers driven. If you want to build something long term, then be learnings driven. Yeah learning because again if you're just numbers driven you might not know why you're yes. successful and it's not replicable but if you're yeah. able to know why things work or don't work then you're able to actually create an actual engine for growing right and you'll be able to repeat that kind of success so yeah i think for us learning feedback from people is incredibly important. I wrote a post the other day where I was basically like, I love it when customers say no. What I mean by that really is I love it when people say no and tell me why and actually spend the time to tell me why, why, why not, why not now? Or like, what do we need to make it a yes? And that is so invaluable. That is incredibly, incredibly valuable for us. So yeah, I think, you know, we want people to try out the product, go through the flows, give us feedback, see what we can do to improve it because we're not building this yeah. for ourselves. I mean, we're building this to try to solve a problem for, for our users. And so the deeper we understand that, the better product we're able to build. Yeah. What have been some learnings, like, you know, when you are focusing on the learnings that really surprised you about whether it's about DeFi, about your own yeah. product or anything, yeah. any learnings that you, when you, I don't know, interviewed your user or saw them using your product that really surprised you? 
You know, I would say that there's there's user groups that actually surprised us. So yeah. everyone thinks that, you know, you must start with the Web3 native user and or else you don't have a product. But actually, we have at least three users who are semi-retired, yeah. who have, are not crypto native, but are open to using stable coins and they're looking for yield generating products and they're financially savvy. And so they're way out of the demographic for, of what most protocols or projects we even look at, right? But we yes. stumbled upon it and we saw that there was a value that we were creating. So, so that surprised us for sure. And that's something that we'll definitely dig into more. But your own users will surprise you if they don't look like you or they are not your same occupation or they're, you know, they're yes. different. So, so I think that, that that was a you know quite a surprising learning. The other learning I will share that was surprising from our side as well is people will try out your product with small amounts. Sometimes you might think, oh, they only put in $50. It's not worth nurturing that relationship. It is worth nurturing a relationship with every single user that has taken a bet and used your product. Um, it's so good. I, I love that advice, especially for DeFi, especially for a financial product. That is the way to go because that's exactly what I do. Whenever I've tried a new platform where I'm using money, I test the waters with a very small amount. <laughs> so it's amazing. Exactly. Well done. Yeah. And that user is very important. And guess what? Sometimes what they do is they come back after putting, let's say $50, they put in 50K. Yeah. So you never really know, right? And so every relationship with your user matters. Yeah. And don't just focus on acquiring new users. Nurture your existing users as well. Yeah. There, there is a very cool meme I saw recently, and it is a comparison between Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne. They both are born in, on, in 1948. They both are male. They both are married twice. They both live in castles. They both are wealthy. They both are famous. So if you look at demographics, they are same. But do they look and do they have similar life? No. <laughs> one is Ozzy Osbourne. One is Prince Charles. You know. <laughs> so what it was saying is that persona shouldn't be about demographics. Persona should be about problems and challenges people face. <laughs> so, absolutely, you're you're exactly right. So, yeah. So again, there might be more similarities between, you know, a 30 year old tech worker that wants yes. to find a strategy after they liquidate their stocks from the company they worked at yeah. and somebody who's semi-retired and 55 years old, who wants to have a medium level yielding product. That's a yes. passive strategy. They look different but they kind of want something similar, right? Absolutely, 100%. So focus on the problem, not on the demographics. And that's the mistake that so many founders make is that they define their demographics, they give it a name or something, and then they just go after that and ignore the bigger sort of picture, the bigger problem. So, so yeah, I really, I, I really like your approach and on how, yeah. we are, how we are solving that. So yeah, so I think, I think I've covered most of my things. What about, I just have one or two more questions. And that is that, what, what, what do you feel about the current state of the crypto market? And, and the next one after that is, where do you think it's going over the next one or two years? Yeah, I actually try not to pay attention too much to the day-to-day -day volatility in the prices for my own mental health. Oh, um, no, no. I don't mean about the the prices as such, just about like, or or I should say the Web3. So because all the products that are coming out in Web3 or, or, or however you might want to define the whole sort of collectively everything that's going on. Yeah. 
Well, look, I, I still think that people are, people are still building, right? I think, so, I, you know, I can only speak for communities that I'm really embedded in, but in yeah. Singapore, there is a Telegram group called Crypto SG Builders, and there are 300 people in it, yes. all kind of builders, right? We're talking GameFi, yes. NFT, we're talking DeFi, we're talking CFI, we're talking RWA, and yes. it's a very active group. We, you know, still meet up very frequently, share ideas, support each other, and starting to in some ways do more like outreach events where maybe yes. you know people who are not in the space also have a way to be able to partake as well so you know i think that and going back to maybe what i said earlier but i don't think prices always reflect the reality on the ground where there's yeah. so much innovation that is happening there's actually a complete disjointness between pricing prices and building right oh and yeah, so yeah. I, I can tell you that a lot lot a lot is happening i mean you know, I, I think that the the kind of you know innovation that's happening in the space spans multiple levels, right? I think on the more primitives layer, right? I, I know tons of people that are doing cool stuff around options, yes. doing exotic options, options folds, like just making it like possible for people to have different expressions of the market in the products that they buy. And so there's a ton of that happening right now in, in the space. And there are builders sitting yes. in Singapore that are doing exactly that. And then, of course, you have, on the other hand, other other side of things. You've got people doing B2B SaaS services for crypto companies, right? So yeah. and they're still innovating, right? So there's folks like Request Finance or HQ. They're companies that are based in Singapore that are also our friends. They're making it, they're trying to make it easier for treasury managers or finance managers at Web3 companies, help them better do expense management, do payouts, things like that. And so... Look, Web3 companies will get better if their operations get better and you need to solve for that too. So yeah, so I, I you know it gives me a lot of energy to 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 still see you know people that are actively building in this space. And you know, many of these will hopefully be like the the big players in the next 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 cycle. Yeah, that's fantastic. So look, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. What I'll do is I'll put the links to to Blue Jay Finance and and in every platform, wherever it goes. And also, can people find you, connect with you, follow you? What's your your social media or channel of choice? Yeah, well, you know, right now I'm, I'm not on thread yet, so I can't say that yet, but I am on Twitter <laughs> yeah. for those on Twitter still. I am also on LinkedIn. I know that's yes. very... Uh, you know, boomer of me or millennial of me, but I'm on LinkedIn and I'm active on it because again, me too, me too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I on am, LinkedIn yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I'm happy to connect on both. I'm, you know, very active on my DMs. So I'm, you know, definitely open to folks that want to reach out. So yeah, that's where you could find me. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and best of luck. For sure. Thank you so much, Sam, for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening or watching this episode of the Web3 with Sam Kamani podcast. By now, you know the drill. Leave a comment or share this episode with a friend and leave a review. I would love to hear from you. So that's why my DMs are open. Reach out to me, especially if you are a founder building a product in Web3, then I would love to hear from you. What are your challenges? Is there anything that I can help you or my community can help you with? Thank you once again and wish you best of luck in building your startup or your project.